Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. How you doing this week, buddy? Oh, it's so good to be able to talk to you again. What do you mean again? Nobody's supposed like, to know that we took a week off because I was lazy. But it's Febtober already. Febtober. We've been working diligently. We have. We've been working very hard. I've been learning a whole new thing about editing. And here we are recording again. And hopefully the recording will work this time and we'll um, be able to edit it seamlessly, flawlessly. Yes, and quicker this time. Well, I think at this point, if we keep doing it with two people editing simultaneously, then it's going it's gonna to get edited pretty quick. What, do you mean we can record twice this week again? It's up to you. Oh, that was... Uh... It was cool. I don't know. It was, it was fun. It's rather intense for figuring stuff out, but um, we leveraged the buffer that we created. Well, I know that you learn really well by trial by fire. Yes, that, that is my technique. Did you do anything for the Super Bowl? No. Oh, yes. Um, Saturday, as you may know, is... Waitangi Day, or was Waitangi Day, just to make sure that we date this episode as well. Um, what is Waitangi Day? It's New Zealand's the day that the Waitangi Agreement was signed. I don't know what that is. It's something to do with New Zealand. The Maori? I assume that it's their version of Canada Day. But uh, some friends of mine, the, the Kiwis, put on a great big party. Uh, it was actually super fun over at Library cool Square. That's fun. Yeah. So they had um, they had a raffle and they had an auction. They had music and they might have done a haka, but I don't remember it. Oh, no, they did do a haka. And I do remember it. I remember that. Good job, me. And And how many hobbits did you win? Oh, I didn't win any hobbits, but they were playing recorded... New Zealand commercials. They had some like rugby highlight games type thing playing that someone had presumably recorded at one point. So there was like these New Zealand air commercials and they were talking about hobbits. Um, yeah. That sounds very flight of the Concord. It a little bit, a little bit is cause they all sort of sound like that. Sounds like they're um, New Zealand kind of, embassy type thing that they celebrated mm. during the show. Yeah. It was actually very fun. And uh whew, everything came up Matthew in the end, which is more than a little surprising. So it was an all day drinking event. Um when I woke up Sunday, probably after the Super Bowl it happened, when I woke up Sunday, um I couldn't find my bank card. I was pretty sure that I'd left my hoodie in the coat check and my leg hurt. So I remembered what happened to my leg. Um, I had stopped to get takeaway uh, 
And as I was running up the escalator with it to get home, to get to the sky train, I fell on the escalator because I was a little bit drunk. And then I was like, oh, so then I was super embarrassed. So I tried to run away, run away in shame. And I tripped again. <laughs> and then I fell on the escalator <laughs> and, and hurt my leg. And then I was like, oh, I can't find my bank card anywhere. So I started looking around for it. Then eventually I checked my phone and I realized that I used my bank card to buy the the takeaway food. So I was like, oh, so I didn't leave it there. All right, perfect. So then I had to find it, but I still was pretty sure I left my hoodie and coat check. And then I found my hoodie and it had the bank card in the pocket. Oh, nice. Yep. So everything worked out for me. Sharon was convinced that she had, or Sharon had lost her purse. She was convinced that someone had stolen it. Inside was her camera and our friend Sid's iPod. And she went back to the bar today and someone had in fact found it and turned it in. Oh, that's lucky. With all of her stuff intact and Sid's iPod. So everything worked out there. Um, it turns out that after a full day drinking event, we didn't do anything wrong. We were a Ow. little surprised. Sharon should really learn to put her camera in her boot. <laughs> I also checked my phone the next day and I hadn't made any, any inappropriate texts. Well, that's not unlike usual. What? I always do. I'm always embarrassed by whatever I've done the night before. That's why the whole text thing is in pain. Which huh. brings me to the, did you know about the Google Labs? This is old, but it's still fantastic. So Google Labs for um, Gmail has created something so that if you try and send an email after, I think it's like... 2 p.m. or something like or 2 a.m. or something like that if you try and send an email then it'll ask you skill testing math questions to make sure that you're not drunk yeah i've heard that that's something you can enable on it it's also in the movie the interns yes yes so they used obviously an actual google feature for that because that had existed long before the the movie but it's clever it is, it is clever, but it's kind of funny. Oh, and Gong Hei Fa Choi, Happy Chinese New Year. Oh, thank you. And to you. Yeah, so are you, in fact, a horse? Uh, no, I'm not a horse. Horse? Horse? Isn't it the Chinese year of the horse? It, it is the year of the horse now. That nice. is not my Chinese astrological sign. What are you, a dog? Rat? Pig. Rat pig. Man, bear, pig. I, I, <laughs> I, I think I am a rat. Huh. I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is I'm a dragon. What? Yeah. So Mia was, uh, they celebrated it at school today and they dressed up with like, they made a dragon out of boxes. Okay. And Mia got to be part of the dragon. So she was the mouth part. Nice. Was there fireworks involved? No, no. They just paraded around the hallway of the school. Did you know that fireworks is an everything event here? No, I did not know that. Like when it's Halloween? Oh, fireworks. Everyone goes crazy with the fireworks. Halloween and fireworks? That's a little confusing to me. Um, yeah, tell that to everyone. Every, every event. Fireworks. 
Do we have a subject for this week? We do have a subject this week. Did you have any follow-up first? Ah, an excellent question. Right? I actually remembered to ask it this time instead of waiting till the end. <laughs> Congratulations. Shh, they don't know that. We edit that part. We're going to edit um, that part too. <laughs> <laughs> actually, so I do have a little bit of follow-up. When we were talking about uh, this Active Directory only coming with servers... When I was listening to it about eight times while editing, uh, a thought had occurred to me is that when you had asked if it comes with any other standalone version or with Windows Server, I wasn't clear if you knew that Windows Server is just a piece of software. So there's a software license associated with it. It doesn't actually mean that it's running on like $20,000 hardware, right? You can run it on a regular computer. And the license itself is, I don't know, somewhere between $500 and $900. Right. But can you specifically get the Windows Server version or the Windows version? Because does it not include additional things like, for instance, Active Directory? Can you get that to run on any other version of Windows so that people at home, if they're super diligent or ambitious can set it up and try and run it. So the Active Directory does require Windows Server. It has to be server itself. And like I was saying, it depends on how big of uh, of a setup you have, if you want to virtualize it all to heck, or if you just want to run it on a single computer with maybe one or two processors, all of that changes the price of the license that you have for Windows. But it doesn't require the killer gear if you, if you don't need it. If you're a small company, like perhaps that graphic design company we're referring to fictitiously throughout it, you know, you, you don't need top-end gear to run Windows Server. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. So this episode is going to be an advanced episode. It's our first advanced episode. Episode 14, the advanced episode. Feel free to dial into our show notes at in-security.org slash EP014. Yes, and I think that you're definitely going to need them, even for people who are used to this and, and know this. This is definitely good to ground it back into what we were discussing in our first few episodes. So like the pilot episode and episode two, and maybe even a little bit of episode three, the deep down workings of the computer. Feel free to listen to the show multiple times and follow along with the show notes. And your own notes. And send us notes. Yeah, sure. Why not? So the topic today is actually how programs work. You know, we, we talked about web vulnerabilities and markup languages and even scripts that are get interpreted, but we didn't actually talk. The, those aren't real programs running on your computer, right? The browser is a real program that's running on your computer that's going through and interpreting the markup language and rendering what you see into something real. Then the web pages that we see are just getting rendered across. All of the smarts that happen within the web server that maybe these vulnerabilities apply to 
are not programs in and of themselves running on your computer as such. How do you want to approach this? How do you want to broach the subject? So we haven't even touched on programming yet, right? We've said at a high level that a computer uses ones and zeros, but the whole concept of programming and and the mechanisms behind it is getting your computer to do something, right? That much is clear, but there are, there are aspects of a programming language that allow you to make the program do something that you want. And this is regardless of whatever programming language you choose to use. So a, a program makes decisions. It, it works. We, we've discussed variables before. So it has the ability of, of holding a value that can change over time. Um, it does comparisons. It has conditions. You know, if this, do that. Right? And there might be iterations that happen. So, you know, keep doing this until this condition comes true. Or while this condition's not true, keep doing this, right? There's the loop ability. And then the things that you do all the time, you want to make those a function that you can call the function so you don't have to type it every time because a program is very linear in its, in its uh, code. You say, okay, first you do this, then you do that. And remember, computers are very dumb and they only do exactly what you tell it to do. I'm also very dumb and I do exactly what I need to. So I'm just going to try and dumb it down a little bit. Function, you've got if this, then that. So that's... If the user presses a key, then show something as an example. And then you've got things that people use constantly that they make into a function, kind of in the same way that if you dial the same phone number over and over again, you're eventually just going to save it into your phone book so that it'll automatically, you'll be able to have it dial it for you. A function is more along the lines of the dialing bit, right? So you're saying... Uh, I have a smartphone. It does a lot of different things. One of the things it does is actually make a phone call. So I can say dialing a phone number is a function and it can be done repeatedly. Like it can, I can choose to call this person and then choose to call that person. And so the person who I'm choosing to contact, the telephone number that I'm choosing to call, that's more along the lines of something called an argument that gets passed to a function. It, which is just another fancy word for a variable that goes to a function. So the variable is, is say your phone number, right? But the calling component, the function of calling a number is the same in a, in a phone than it is for you. And it is for my mom or it is for my wife. You know, it's the same technique of connecting a call together it's just the number that's being dialed is changing. There's, there's the iterations that we talked about. Uh, there's also the fact that computers count starting from zero. You know, it's not something that's often taken for granted. But, uh, you know, zero is a state of being. Then you one, two. So if you're counting down, you know, you want to make sure that you account for zero. It's something actually people do overlook. And then there's variables, right? Or there's actually constants. You can declare a constant, say, you know, 
Matt is Matt Thompson is your name, right? So that would be a constant throughout your life. Let's, let's take a scenario. Let, let's put this into a scenario to make it real. I'm sitting at my desk and my coworker brings by somebody and introduces me to this person. So to bring this all together, let's bring about a, an example, a scenario that you might find yourself in. Okay. And we're going to use something called pseudocode, which just means it's like it's actually a programming language, but it's not. It's not tied to any specific programming language that's out there. You know, it's just generally how a computer does these things. And we can start calling back to these things, right? So say you're sitting at your desk, your coworker comes by and introduces a new person to you. So... Um, because the computer is very granular and only does one thing at a time, it might say, okay, so if I'm sitting, if my horizontal state is sitting, then engage the stand function. So it'll start doing that. And then if the introduced person is to your right, then engage the rotate right function to face the new person. Else, engage the rotate left function to face the new person. End that if statement open hand and extend it towards the person. Say, hi, I'm constant own name. And you are. And then you take in what they say into, into a memory of location, a buffer. You take that buffer for that person's name by using the listen function towards that new person. You clasp the hand and you shake it up and down three times and you say, Nice to meet you. And then you refer back to that buffer new person. So there's an example. Set panic equals on flush memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to it's good to repeat them or associate them with things. The point though is that no matter what programming language that we use to actually program this into the computer pretending that we are the computer, right? It gets compiled, compiled down into the lowest level language that the machine can understand, right? So it gets compiled down, it gets linked, it gets turned into machine language. And there's a whole bunch of different things that get done with the high level language that we had for this pseudocode. And it'll be able to do things like when we say, okay, engage the stand function, right? So as that comes down to your body's machine language, right? It might be like fire synapse to start triggering the muscles, allocate the blood to the muscles, start balancing forward. So as the knee extends up, you don't topple over, you know, make these micro adjustments. And the next thing you know, you're standing. There's a limitation to how far the muscles go forward to be able to actually stop when you're standing instead of, you know, the legs go forward or whatever, right? So because standing is something that we regularly do, we're not going to write that code every single time. So you've got it as a stand function. Right. So that you can readily call that throughout the life cycle of the program. There's also the part where we define the constant in it, which is our name, right? So at the beginning... We're given a name that gets assigned into a constant that no matter what, we can just quickly refer to it as that title for the constant. So constant own name in this case, and then quickly dump out the contents of that, that constant buffer. 
And then when we're going to get somebody else's name, we assign a buffer to that. And we take in and fill up that buffer from the information that we get back when we listen to the person's name. So that's all well and good. That's, that's pretty easy to understand. Now is the part where we get really technical. Whenever you have a program, there's five parts to it. We talked about a couple of the parts before, right? So you've got the code segment, which is the machine language that that's going to execute through and it's actually dynamic. So where we have like a, a loop, it'll say, do this part, go forward, see if I've done it enough times to get out of this loop. If not, you know, do it again. So it jumps back and forth, right? And it doesn't actually have to map out all of the 10 times or whatever that we're going to execute through this part in the code, right? The code is, is just the instructions that need to occur, the jumps, the whatever. And there's a part of it that tells you where you are in the code, that tells the machine, because the machine is just a, basically a calculator, right? It just does exactly what it's told in these little bits. And so there's an instruction pointer that tells you where you are throughout the execution of the code, that's called an instruction pointer. And then there's the data. So that would be the, the constants that are defined, the global variables. And that'll either be in the, the data segment if it's initialized at the very beginning, whenever it's, it's initialized, or it'll happen in something called the BSS segment if it's uninitialized. Right? And all this means is that these are variables that we're going to keep going back to and they either already have a value defined, which can change, or they haven't been defined yet and need to change. And so all of this is actually mapped out in memory, right? So what we're talking about right now and throughout this is just going to be the memory allocation. So as soon as your program gets loaded up, the code gets taken out of uh, the executable that's there plopped into the code segment and it cannot change. The code segment is not a writable portion. And then you've got your data segment, your BSS segment that get loaded up that can change. They can be allocated, uh, accessed randomly. So if you say, okay, I want the constant name, then I'm going to go to that portion of the data segment to get that out. So using the same program that you have already, you know that at the start of the day, you have to set the data segment. So you speak with your coworker, whose job it is to introduce people to you. And he tells you at the start of the day, I'm going to introduce you to 10 people throughout the day. So that sets your data segment. You now know that you have to repeat this activity 10 times. And if you don't, then you're not going to have met everybody. So after you do it the first time, you increment a counter by one. You've now met one person. By the end of the day, if you have not met all 10 people, then you're still going to be needing to meet that last person before you leave because you've got each increment goes up. Then partway through, because the data can be changed, he tells you, sorry, two of them called in sick. So now you're down to eight. So once you reach eight, your program is done. You've spoken to eight people, you've stood up eight times, you've introduced yourself eight times, you've done your full cycle. Yeah, I suppose that would work. And I think that touched on the the loop 
and the data segment. Yeah, that that would work. Uh, then there's the heap part, which is something that gets dynamically created and allocated, and and the heap segment is next after the BSS. And we're very linear throughout this process, right? You've got your code, you've got your data, you've got your BSS, and then you've got your heap. And your heap is for things like uh, the buffer name that we're going to allocate for somebody's name to get put into there. It's a predefined space that gets put aside. And then now we're going to hop to the complete opposite end of the memory. So all of this has been progressing very linearly from the, you know, the first few segments of memory that we ha- that were allocated. Our program will dynamically be allocated uh, a space for which it will start allocating this information within like the next available space in memory, starting from zero and moving up. So you've got start at zero. There's the protected memory for the operating system. You know, then you've got, I can't remember where it starts, but after that, you can start having programs be there. Oh, in the code segment. So you can have multiple instances of a program running at the same time, right? So say in notepad, you have notepad running and you're doing something in one version of Notepad, you fire up another instance of Notepad, it doesn't have to write a new code segment because that code is constant and not changing. It can just refer back to that initial code segment, and you can have two things running, and you gain efficiency that way. But you'll have different data segments, different DSS segments. You'll have different heaps. And then the thing that we're talking about now is from the top of the memory from the very end you have something called the stack and the stack is a dynamic scratch pad area where everything gets written in this method called last in first out so the first thing that gets written to the stack is how to get back to your program execution where it was right so it It'll write down the instruction pointer as the return address that it needs to go back to. And then there's a couple concepts within the stack. One is called the base pointer, which is basically where the stack begins from. And then there's the stack pointer, which is where within the stack you are. So it's like an instruction pointer, but instead of moving from... uh, you know, the left side to the right side as we're progressing through a program, this is actually moving in the opposite direction. So it's moving from the right side to the left as it goes through what's what's gets written to the stack to see where you are. And it, the whole point of this is it goes from the stack pointer all the way back to the base pointer because it's progressing back through everything that's written from the last in becomes the first out that gets executed through. So this is really kind of difficult to understand but things get written to the stack to be the scratch pad for temporary work that's going to get done so like a function call is like a stack segment that gets created right so you have you know i'm meeting somebody you know i need to know where i am in that whole standing up process so you know, say say I'm doing some work and I want to get back to that work afterwards, right? So before I initiate that stand up function, 
I, you want to remember the exact state that you were in so that you can go back to your work as soon as this interruption is done of meeting somebody. So you save that place where you were at within the execution of your daily chores as that instruction pointer gets put into the return address within the stack that gets created for this introduction for this. The function of standing up is the beginning of the new stack, right? So the stack gets the stack frame gets created and within it, you have the information of if you're sitting and maybe some other state, like which direction you're facing, right? So then you, the, function starts going through and it'll say, okay, also part of this function is, you know, a call to uh, another function. So it knows you're sitting, it'll start the standing process and then it'll call the rotate process, the rotate function where you'll start rotating till you're facing the person. Right? So you have, one function being the standing one, calling the next function being the rotate one. So your stack still remains there. It creates this whole new stack frame for the rotating till you're facing the person, right? And then it'll go back, fall back through, kill that stack frame that was created for rotating because you don't need to rotate anymore, right? And then it'll go to the standing one, say, okay, I'm done standing. I don't need that stack frame anymore. It'll go back through and it'll go back to that main code segment and you'll now be back to where you first started from. Actually, no, because you're, you're not going back to your work yet. So it'll maybe the whole introduction function is what you started that, that called the stand function. We had stand, we had turn, we had open hand, we had greet, we had get their name. Right. So... You're working, you get interrupted. It calls the greeting function. Part of that greeting function call uh, creates that stack for the whole activities of greeting, keeping information as to where to go back to your work function. Right now you initiate the standing function. So it gets past arguments, which are just like variables, remember, that say, okay, I'm, my state is my horizontal state right now which happens to be sitting and then my direction that i'm facing is this quadrant within the whichever direction i'm facing and then i'll bring that into the standing function i start standing once i'm fully stood then i'll call that next function which is the rotate function to rotate towards the person right and now i don't don't need the rotate function anymore so i'll pop back out of that function I'll close all of the function state within the stack uh, that was needed for that because I don't ever need to rotate anymore or until maybe, you know, I call it back again when I need to rotate back to my sitting at my desk. But anyways, it cleans up that stack frame. I'm back to the greeting person one, you know, and then it calls that next function where I introduce myself and then it'll execute the listening function where I listen back for the input. So these are all these stack frames getting dynamically allocated. And so 
it remembers where I have to go back to so that that previous stack that I have to go back to where in it I was based on the uh, stack frame pointer for that base of it, and how far through that I was, which is the stack pointer, which is that that measures how far down that scratch pad I was that I'll have to go back to. A lot of the times you'll see a reference to this. If you do any research, most of the times they refer to the instruction pointer as EIP, which is the extended instruction pointer, which is what you would see in a 32-bit Intel world. Now that there's 64 bits, I'm not positive what it is for 64-bit Intel. Whenever we're defining variables, it's putting aside a certain amount of space for those variables. So for instance... I, an integer would be, you know, maybe eight bytes long, a signed integer, you know, just tells it whether to start at zero or not, right? A, a character would be a byte long. Um, all of these things, when we're defining them, without necessarily knowing what state they're going to hold or be changed to, we're actually putting aside the space within the data segment or the BSS, or the heap, depending on if it's something that would be used maybe more holistically or universally throughout it, or we're setting aside the space within the stack if it's only going to exist for the lifespan of that function. So the systems that we have now have a lot of memory where they can actually store this information into. And we're not really at risk of running out of the memory space, but in the old days, I mean, you could have that heap expanding out and towards the right, like from bottom to top, right? And then you could have the stack, which is growing in the opposite direction, you know, exhaust all of the memory of the system and those two smacking into each other. So is that what led to them really limiting the variable length in a lot of things? No, it... The limitation is that they have to limit it to be able to define where it's going to, how, how much space needs to be put aside within the data segment, the BSS segment, the heap, or whatever, right? Because computers are dumb, they need to be told exactly these structures that are required so that it can do what it needs to do. You can't have something be dynamic at machine language. It doesn't work like that. You can have it be dynamic at higher level languages, the scripts or whatnot that get brought down through an actual program that interprets the script and then brings that structure to it. So in the higher level languages, like maybe even Visual Basic, you can define a variable name and then when you get around to using it, it'll perhaps try to allocate, uh, if I recall correctly, it'll actually just dynamically get it down to the right type of variable. But when you get down to the machine language for that, it's already got all of these definitions created and set aside, which may be why, you know, a visual basic program requires more space to be able to hold this information or the compiler will be smart enough to actually see how it's going to be used and then not have to hold a different segment for a character buffer or a number, a whole number or a 
fractional number or whatnot. But so in the way olden days, when you had memory restrictions being a lot more critical, they used to have, for instance, in things like video games and arcade machines, where they would only allow you to put in three characters because that's all it was able to save for your name. Right. Well, you got to remember that back in the day, people were programming at the low level languages, right? So they would put out these three characters that you could enter something into, into the actual assembler that made up the program that was running on the arcade, right? So when it got time for a person to put in their high score, they'd only have the option of entering the three characters because the person had also programmed that validation that I know I'm only going to allow up to these three characters, right? We're not, we don't want more characters coming back because the computer program is not written to be able to handle it. So it'll crash. Right. And we will get into all of the fun crashing and whatnot in the next episode. Crashing. Was that our segue to the next episode? That was our segue to the next episode. I'm looking forward to looking into how we can break things and how we can try and stop them from being broken. Um, we're on a, a bit of a rampage now for our recording. I think this is going well. Yeah, no, for sure. It's going to be a fun time learning about uh, the breaking stuff and seeing how the things that have been around in computer history, breaking computer programs for so long, uh, still exist and are common and and. We'll examine that next time. By the way, this is uh, an advanced topic. It's really deep in depth for as far as how a computer actually works. It's a foundation to next week's episode where we're going to talk about breaking things using these techniques. It might take a couple listens to go through. If anything's unclear, if we misrepresented anything, please send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. And by all means, check out the show notes for the episode. It is very heavy. So hopefully those will help quite a bit. That being said, you have yourself a great week, Matt. Thanks, you too, buddy. <laughs>